Hey, welcome to the show. I'm Mike Schaub. And I'm Marin Lazian. And this is He Sang, She Sang from WQXR. Today, we are taking a look at a relatively new opera titled L'Amour de Luan. It's going to be on the national radio broadcast uh, at the Met this weekend on Saturday, 1 o'clock on WQXR. Uh, like I said, it's a relatively new opera, which is pretty rare in the world of opera, right? It is. It is. It's actually way more modern than anything else being produced at the Met this year. I think the second most modern show was written in 1936 or something. So um, this was written in 2000, so way newer. And because it's so new, that makes it unique in the sense that it's not a story that we've all grown up with and have seen a million times. Yeah. This will probably be the first time that most of the people in the audience have ever seen the opera. The premiere was at the Salzburg Festival in 2000. So it's going to be a fresh thing for most of the people watching. That's pretty cool. It's also got to be cool for the actors to be doing a new opera because like, if they mess up, nobody knows they did something <laughs> wrong, right? Well, someone very important knows, like the composer who's in the room. But yeah, no one in the audience will know, or very few people anyway. That's right. We're going to have Kaya Sariaho join us a little bit later. But first, let's talk about the plot, characters, and the music. Now, not everybody has seen this opera. Uh, very few people in New York have seen this opera. However, our very own Marin Lazian took the time to go and watch a DVD and familiarize herself with it so that we could tell you what's going on and hopefully make your experience listening to it on Saturday that much better. So... DVD? What was it? Where's it from? Yeah. So this was an amazing DVD. I went and sat upstairs in the uh, Performing Arts Library at Lincoln Center. And this DVD is of the Salzburg production. It's with Don Upshaw and Gerald Finley. And it's beautiful. It's really, really beautiful. The set is full of water. Water is kind of a character in this opera in a way, this ocean that divides two lovers. Okay. So this opera is also unique in that uh, really there's three characters, and it's about a long-distance relationship. Yeah, exactly. So there are those three characters, as you said. There's there's a prince, Geoffrey Rudel. Played by Eric Owens. Played by Eric Owens in this production. There is a countess, sort of across the ocean from him, in Tripoli, Lebanon. And who's playing her? Susanna Phillips is playing Clemence, is her name. Nice. And there's a pilgrim, played by Tamara Mumford, who travels back and forth across the ocean between them and sort of fans their love flames. Interesting. Um, and so uh, it's a long-distance relationship, uh, but it's not like, you know, your first semester at college when you're FaceTiming with your girlfriend back home or your boyfriend. No, dude. This is the 12th century. The pilgrim's boat is modern technology. So what else is weird about this long-distance relationship? So not only are they not FaceTiming, but they've actually never even met at the time they fall in love. Not only never met, but like they've never heard about each other. They've never corresponded. Well, they've only heard about each other um, through the pilgrim. The pilgrim tells each of them about the other one and spurs on this love. But they've never seen each other. Everything, everything that they know is what they hear and what they imagine. Uh, so, yeah, it's, you know... It's not even as good as internet dating. You don't even have the pictures. Right. They have nowhere to swipe. So at the beginning, the prince slash troubadour, and uh, if you don't know what a troubadour is, he's basically a prince that sings all the time. Yeah, right? he writes songs. Writes songs, plays on his guitar or his lute, if you will. <laughs> I will. <laughs> okay, so how did it work? How do these, at the very beginning of the opera, what's going on? And then how do these two learn about each other? 
At the very beginning, you have this Prince Joffre who is, he's unhappy. He's singing about the fact that he's unhappy. He used to be better, stronger. um, Quicker, stronger, faster. Quicker, stronger, faster, and just generally happier. And he feels like his glory days have passed him by. And the pilgrim comes by and starts talking to him. Um, she slash he. It's a it's a female character, a mezzo soprano, but singing what we call a pants role, which is to say that the character itself is is a boy or a man, um, but sung by a woman. So. The character of the pilgrim comes by and they start talking and Joffre starts describing his ideal woman. And he's, you know, he's got some high expectations in there. He talks about her being graceful and humble and virtuous and shy but strong. And then this this refrain that comes up throughout the entire opera of what his ideal love would be like is this. He says, she's beautiful but without the arrogance of beauty, that she's noble, but without the arrogance of nobility, and that she's pious, but without the arrogance of piety. So he wants... This woman who has all of these amazing qualities, but none of the bad stuff. So like a 12th century Jackie O. Yeah, that's what he's looking for. Got it. But he doesn't believe he'll ever find it, and he laments that this woman isn't out there. But the pilgrim says, hold on a minute. Actually, I think I saw your girl. I was traveling around. I was over in Tripoli at the Citadel, and there was this woman, and no one could take their eyes off of her. And... Basically, this is the start of the love affair. Do you think the pilgrim had like financial incentive to <laughs> to finding somebody for this dude? I don't know what his deal is, but he's like he hears this guy's story and then he's like, you know what? On the other continent, I met this woman, and you should pay to send me back. It's a very good question. I don't know. All right, so he uh, he tells the prince. Prince falls in love. Doesn't want to know her name. Does the prince send the pilgrim? back to the countess or is the pilgrim on this like extensive journey just going back and forth seeing how many times he can do it so the prince is convinced now that there's this woman out there but he doesn't actually believe he'll ever meet her and he'll ever be able to love her in real life but the pilgrim takes it upon himself to get back in his boat and travel back across the ocean to tripoli where the countess clemence is and they start talking she sees his ship appear and calls him over so this is like literally a story of he sang, she sang. <laughs> it is truly a story of he sang, she sang. It's perfect for this it show. It is. This is our show. <laughs> so the Countess is unhappy, too. We find out very quickly. She, she comes from France, but when she was five, she was brought over to Tripoli. And it's just not her place. She's she, an immigrant. She's an immigrant, and she misses home. She misses home a lot, actually. And... There's a part of her that is afraid that everyone there and everything there has forgotten her. Oh, my 
So she just feels really removed and isolated isolated and distant since this opera is very much about being far away from things from her homeland. All right. So the pilgrim gets back in her boat, his boat. Not yet. Not yet. So the countess is talking about being forgotten and the pilgrim takes the opportunity to say, actually, there's this guy across the ocean who's kind of thinking about you. And the countess is like, what? How is it possible? How does he know me? Did he see me as a child? Um, And he said, no, he's crazy. (laughs) He He only dreams about you. He's just obsessed. He's never seen you. And the countess is actually sort of put off at first and even offended. She doesn't really understand how someone who doesn't know her at all could possibly think that they're in love with her. But the pilgrim kind of wears her down and something becomes charming about the idea of this man far away who is dreaming of her. But there's one thing that kind of bugs her, and that's her own self-doubt. And this comes up for both of them a lot in the opera. But she starts to wonder if she's really deserving of of this man's love. Did the pilgrim bring any of the songs the guy writes? Yeah, he actually does. He sings it for her. And this is one of the turning points for her when she starts to feel intrigued and flattered instead of offended. Pilgrim's got skills. He can... He can navigate the seas he can like counsel nobility into and and convince them to do things and he's also a pretty good singer yeah and also awesome lyric recall like he remembered those songs all the way across that ocean yeah like paper was super expensive in the 12th century so like everything was memorized yeah yeah that's pretty baller baller okay so she overcomes her self-doubt enough to send the pilgrim back to the troubadour she doesn't send him he just just goes he just goes like a rogue pilgrim yeah (laughs) all right so he just goes. He goes. Do we get to spend any time on the seas with the pilgrim alone, like thinking about his thoughts? No. You know, the pilgrim really exists to to bring these two people together, sort of tragically as it turns out, although I won't spoil it hey, yet. But... Hey, hey, don't shoot the messenger. Sorry. Because <laughs> the pilgrim's the messenger. That's right. So the pilgrim's back with the, the troubadour. Yeah. He goes on back to uh, to France and the troubadour tells me, it says, you know, tell me, did you see her? Tell me all about her. Describe her. I can, I can only see her through your eyes. And so they start chatting. And it kind of comes out that the pilgrim told the countess all about the, the troubadour's love for her. Wait, that wasn't, the, the pilgrim wasn't supposed to do that? He wasn't. Wow. He wasn't. And Geoffrey gets really, really angry. He actually kind of flips out. He cuts off his head. <laughs> Look, he's a singer, not a fighter. Uh, okay. Okay. All right. So he doesn't cut off his head. He doesn't cut off his head. So what happens? He he chews him out. Um and he really flies off the handle, but he comes to realize that this pilgrim is basically his closest friend. Um he's kind of a lonely guy. So they make up. 
And that's when he allows the pilgrim to finally reveal her name, Clémence. Oh, big reveal. And what happens then? Does like does the stage open up and doves fly out and like is it like No, the pilgrim just gets on his boat and goes back to Clémence. To, That's it. Yeah, to keep on talking. Subtle. So what happens next? The pilgrim gets back in his boat. He goes to see the countess. We find out that she's memorized some of this guy's songs and she's singing them to herself. So I think she's pretty into it. It's like she made herself a (laughs) mixtape. Yeah, her own internal mixtape of Geoffrey's songs um, that she sings on loop. Nice. But we also learn that she does not expect him to come. She never expects to meet him. And so that for her means that she can just be happy about knowing that there's this man who loves her and she kind of feels she loves him. But she doesn't have to worry about reality. And she doesn't want to. She wants him to stay where he is and for them just to think about each other forever. Hmm. Yeah. All right, but that's not going to work. There's, where's the drama in that? Well, the drama's coming. Nice. Actually, because... Because the pilgrim arrives. Because the pilgrim, he goes right on back to, to Aquitaine to pick up Geoffrey and take him back across the ocean to meet Clémence. Is this on her orders? Or is this Pilgrim Rogue One again? I think this is Pilgrim Rogue One with the consent of Geoffrey. I don't think Clémence knows that he's coming. Um, And we find out this is the first time that Geoffrey has actually set foot in water. He's been surrounded by it throughout the opera, but he's never been in it. Wow. Okay, so Joffrey hops in the boat with the pilgrim, anchors away. But it's not smooth sailing. Because he's, he's pretty scared, actually. And it turns out that he's sort of scared of every possible outcome. He's, he's scared of meeting her because he has this perfect image of what she is. And I think it starts to dawn on him that it might not work out quite that way. He's scared of having decided to meet her and the journey itself, what happens if they don't make it across the ocean, but also what happens if they do. He's probably a pretty lousy sailor, too. I mean... Fortunately, as the pilgrim. Right, but still, like, it sounds like a tough journey. That's all I'm saying. Tough journey. Okay. He starts looking a little green around the gills. Rut-row. Yeah. He's, he starts not feeling so well. Kind of has a full-blown panic attack on the way over. De la 
guerra to thee. Je perde disparate honor. So when they arrive, he's looking and feeling pretty lousy. And the pilgrim runs up to Clémence and warns her that they're there, that she's brought Geoffrey, but that he's likely not going to live. Because he has scurvy. <laughs> you know, it's never identified as scurvy. It's more like he's heart sick. He's heart sick. Wow, but he's about to meet his love. He is, but How he's... How could it be heartsick? He's scared. He's scared. All right. Yeah. Boy. Okay. So the doctor comes, confirms that... Jo- we never see the doctor, but we hear that the doctor confirms that Geoffrey will not live past morning. So now these lovers finally meet, but they know that they only have basically a few hours together. So this is a real, you know, carpe diem, seize the day type moment they kind of throw themselves into it because he's going to die. Um, so they, they profess their love and they kind of imagine what it would have been like were he to have lived. They just imagine? Well, there may be one little kiss. Oh. But it's just a little one. Just a little peck? A little peck. And he's probably pretty gross at this point. <laughs> yeah, he's like... So they meet. They kiss. They meet and they kiss. They imagine life together. And, and then he dies? And then he dies. Tragic. And she's she's real, real sad. She's um, crushed. Yeah. And this actually isn't the very end of the opera. There's there's some time with her mostly singing on her own. She sort of talks about joining a convent. She can't imagine how she would ever give herself to another man after this. Are, are you sure we're not talking about last week's episode, Manon Lesko? There are a lot of convents, it turns out, in opera. Yeah, and, and lovers losing each other. Lovers losing each other. And this one's kind of interesting. There there are a lot of operas where at the end a woman dies and the man who loves her is crying over her body. See every Puccini opera ever? Most Puccini operas ever, yes. But now we have the reverse here. The The man dies and this woman cries over his dead body. It's a new day. It's a new day. I love it. Yeah. I love it. The guy dies. So is that it? She, uh, that's she more... loses him and... That's more or less it. She she sings about another love from afar, which is her love of God. She decides to turn toward her love of God. She gets very religious. She gets pretty religious and finds this other very distant person to love. Would that that would be God? Yeah, God. Oh. God. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well there you have it. That is the abridged version of L'Amour de Louin and um you can experience the opera in its entirety this Saturday on the national broadcast of the Metropolitan Opera, uh, heard on WQXR and WQXR.org. Coming up in just a moment, we're going to be joined by the stars of L'Amour de Louin, Eric Owens. And Susanna Phillips. This is He Sang, She Sang from WQXR. Soprano Susanna Phillips is playing the role of Clémence in L'Amour de Louin at the Met right now. And it turns out she was actually one of the first people to ever see this opera. She was at the premiere in Salzburg, and she brought a very special date. I was studying as a student in Salzburg, and uh, my my parents brought my grandmother over. She's from Pilahatchie, Mississippi. And they brought her to Salzburg just to kind of have a visit, and she'd never seen an opera before. So we got tickets to the only thing that had any tickets left, and there were very few left. And it was to the new opera, L'Amour de Loin. And none of us knew anything about it, but we went. And at the end of it, I was like, Grandmother, 
I, I probably should have taken you like Carmen or Marriage <laughs> of Figaro or something that's a little more easily palatable. I mean, this piece is so beautiful, absolutely uh, lyrical and stunning and mysterious, and it is a masterpiece in, in every sense of the word. It doesn't sound like Mozart. It's a different total tone world. And she absolutely was overwhelmed and loved it. What do you think it was that your grandmother connected to? I think the humanity of this piece is palpable. My grandmother does not speak French, so she had no idea what the opera was about when we were watching it. But you don't have to in this particular piece. I feel like the humanity comes out in the music. You'd have to ask her, though. (laughs) She'd let you know. (laughs) But that production had water flooding the stage. It had a lot of um, stairs, and Clémence had all the stairs. And so when I found out that we didn't have that in this production, I thought, oh, thank goodness. I don't have to go get on the Stairmaster. So how how is the ocean characterized in this production? They have uh, incorporated many bands of LED lights, each individually programmed to create the sea. And it's pretty incredible. It's amazing what they can do. And then they use a bridge that at first look looks very cold and mechanical because it's a bridge. But as you, as the opera progresses, you see that it moves in almost a sensual way. It's very smooth and it almost becomes humanized in a way. And so I, I think it's quite beautiful. Yes, and, and the I do agree the way it moves. It is an extension of everything about each of these two characters. And yet when we're on stage, we're both on this piece of machinery, but it's... It's an extension of us. It's it's where we live. It's our homeland. It's everything. And, you know, when we step foot on it, it becomes this different entity. Mm-hmm. We're never knowingly on it together. That's right. We're on... The only time that we're together is in the sea. Yes. And one of the reasons that I was really excited about having you both together in this room is because you're lovers throughout this opera, effectively, but you're closer right now than you are for the vast majority of this piece. What's it like having your love interest on stage be someone that you don't actually know for much of the time? It's very different. It is different. And and I guess this romantic ideal or the the, the act of loving someone sight unseen is not something that is carried out in the modern day world. <laughs> you know, this is something that is incredibly romantic in the in the 19th century sense of the word. I mean, even though this is many centuries earlier, but I think we do imagine who that person might be. I mean, everyone does. But I don't think we think we love someone without meeting them anymore. I mean, maybe some people do. I don't know, Susanna. What do you think? I think uh, the only kind of way that I can see people in the modern day really considering that with all the different ways of, of knowing people is maybe having a child where you know that you're going to love this child no matter who they end up being. Hmm. And and you're you're going to get to know them, but you know from day one that – no matter what, they will be loved by their parents. And that's something that's biological. It's, it's imprinted in us. So whether that love begins day one or it evolves over time, that's that kind of love. I think this, for Clemence in the opera, I feel like it's a similar kind of opening up to love because 
she's a fir- at first very offended by finding out that someone is singing songs about her and 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 kind of putting that love out there. And then she says, oh, the idea of it's great as long as it stays over there. And I'm not waiting for him to come over here. That's why it's perfect. That's why it's great. That's why I'm not upset about anything. And then you can kind of tell that she actually is waiting for him to come. And when he does arrive, you can see her nervousness. And then when he arrives in such a state where he's so imperiled, it's seeing all of a sudden she feels this overwhelming emotion that I think she has put off because of her nobility and because of her character, I think she she has kind of withheld most of that until the very end of the opera. But I think, in a way, it's some kind of, uh, I hate to say it, but some kind of, like, perfect love. It's not a lustful love. It's a very um, pure. Po- pure and poetic mm-hmm. love. Even at the end, when they have their kiss, in the score, it says, I mean, it means their, their lips just brush together. And something we talked about in rehearsal, it's it's not a, an impas- a passionate embrace where they just both completely complete their love. It's They don't need that. They just need a, a, a moment of of touching, and that was all. That's enough, and that makes it complete. And I think in some ways, purity is a good word for it. And one, one thing that I love about this opera, I mean, there is that purity, and then there's also this overwhelming humanity I think for both of them, you you delve so deep into their fear and their insecurity, and they they do both seem scared of this love that they feel. For Clemence, what do you think it is that she's fearful of? I think she's fearful of opening up. I think she's in a place where she has felt alien and felt, you know, like an orphan in a strange world, and someone from kind of her homeland is opening up this place and this time for her almost familial um and very familiar kind yeah. of thing what's Geoffrey afraid of if i were to narrow it down i think he's afraid of being wrong hmm. you know was he wrong to start this voyage looking for the ideal Love and when he sees her, how's he going to feel? And so I think that there's something inside him that's making himself ill. And I think there's something inside him that's keeping him alive until he sees her. And so with that dichotomy and then all the things that he said he's scared of and, you know, I'm scared of getting there, I'm scared of not getting there, I'm, I'm scared of... Meeting her, I'm scared of not meeting her. And, and, and so fear and hope are as intertwined as living and dying. Because, I mean, one, one nanosecond you're here and one nanosecond you're gone. And then you can sort of teeter-totter back and forth on this precipice of fear and hope. And I think he wants to experience it briefly so he can fade away. And all of that is scary, all of that. I mean, the actual dying probably has to be scary. And the actual living thereafter, it's probably more terrifying. You know, I joked with Suzanne in rehearsal one day. I was like, you know, if he lived and like two weeks later, you'd probably be saying, oh, your poetry sucks. Go back, <laughs> go back to where you came from. So it's, it's, it remains unspoiled. Yeah. And, and it can't go wrong now. Right. 
because it's so right in these precious few moments of bliss. I found myself wondering if there was any other possible ending to this opera, and... I can't think of one that, that, that doesn't have reality creeping in there and screwing everything all up. Oh, reality. <laughs> Always screwing everything up. Um, do you have a favorite musical moment, Susanna? One is the Pilgrim's song, the, the troubadour aria that she sings to Clémence. Why? Um, Why that one? Because I, I find it so touching as a character, and I also find it so touching as a musician. It sounds very medieval. It touches your heart. It's very difficult. It's one of the most difficult parts of the opera, and Tammy Mumford does an incredible job with it because it is hard. It is not easy. But at the end, once you do all the work and you want to get it there, it sounds easy, and it sounds like this pilgrim is just doing a little extra flourish here, doing a little cadenza here and there. Sounds improvisational. It sounds improvisational, but it is so clearly written out that it's you you have to work to get it to the point where it sounds that way and she sounds beautiful in in it. I personally think it should be part of the canon of the regularly performed operas. I think it is profound and poetic and beautiful. And I I hope that the audience is able to kind of close their eyes and really let it wash over them because similar to a Debussy opera or even a Mozart opera, it deepens and kind of saturates you as you as you open yourself to it. So, Absolutely. Thank you so Absolutely. much, Eric Owens, and thank you, Susanna Phillips, for talking with me today. I honestly cannot wait for this premiere. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. We have a very exciting guest in the studio right now. Yes, we do. Kaya Sariaho. She's the composer of L'Amour de Loin and an award-winning Finnish composer originally from Helsinki but now living in France. Kaya, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. I'm happy to be here. So tell us, how does it feel to have your opera debut at the Met? It feels quite grand, of course. Of course. It's, um, it's a fantastic venue and um, this is quite amazing. You've said in the past that as you were writing the opera, you realized that you were writing two sides of your own life and personality, that you're both the troubadour and the lady. What did you mean by that? Well, I mean that um, I, of course, I have, a, I have my professional life and then I have my private life as a woman. It has been sometimes difficult to bring these two to sides of my existence together so I I somehow realized that that's why I felt so so at home in in these both persons and that's why I felt so strangely about uh, the pilgrim because the pilgrim is like the destiny who is trying to bring these two Together. What's difficult about joining your life as a professional musician and as a woman? Well, as a woman, uh, as, a, as a mother, for example, because I have two, two children. So um, it has been just um, keeping my artistic integrity in my mind and then becoming all of the sudden somebody very practical, which is, was not my strong point. So... Sometimes it's very, very demanding, but finally a question of organization. And um, I'm very happy now that I have had these challenges. Well, on, the, on the subject of, of being a woman and a mother, 
in some ways, there's a lot of feminist buzz around this opera, in part because, you know, it's the first opera since 1903 at the Met that was composed by a woman and only the second opera in the Met's history that's composed by a woman. And then Susanna Malky, who is the conductor, obviously a, a woman. Are you tired of talking about what it means to be a woman composer instead of just talking about being a composer? Or does that seem like an important distinction to you? Over the years, uh, I had different attitudes on this subject. In the beginning of my my professional life, I really didn't want to speak about being a woman, and I felt very insulted that uh, my music could not reach directly and, uh, and that there was this question of my person. And also it was because I had a hard time in the beginning because of I was a woman and uh, I could get compliments like, oh, wow, what a great piece. I could have never thought it was composed by a woman. And then um, little by little when my music um, was well known and uh, has had many opportunities, well, I didn't have this problem anymore. And so I thought, well... That's great. world has advanced and this problem doesn't exist anymore. And then, what, maybe eight years ago, I started to realize that I was completely wrong. Hmm. This uh, problem does exist, but only I don't have it anymore personally. Right. And, uh, and, and that there are young uh, women, and here I'm speaking only about Western cultures and... Uh, uh, fighting, uh, fighting for the place as as I was, so of course we should speak about it. But still, um, I'm asking myself because I think the worst thing would be to to close women to one group. It would create a ghetto. You know that's why I'm not so crazy about like. A, Women music, women music festivals, like are they like uh, black music festivals? I, I feel that if we live in the same society, we should be able to share or all together. So that's my attitude. And and yes, I'm tired about speaking about this, but uh, I imagine one needs to speak about it. I, I saw recently now when um, Pauline Oliveros passed away just a little time ago. I saw a New York uh, Times article from uh, 1970 where she spoke about these same matters. I mean, they were exactly the same things that uh, she was saying that I'm repeating now. Yeah. Not a lot of progress? There must be some progress. There must be. I mean... uh, um, there, there must be at some level, <laughs> but... Uh, but we're not done yet. Not done yet, yes. Yeah. Um, much of your work, including L'Amour de Luan, combines electronic and acoustic instruments. How do these work together, and what do you find the combination brings to the music? It's true I'm using a lot uh, electronics combined to my um, instrumental music, and uh, it's every time quite different, in, in fact, here in um, Lamour de Luan, it's something very subtle. I have uh, pre-prepared uh, sound files, which uh, 
are mixed with the orchestra texture and they are like a continuation of the orchestration. So they are very smoothly coming and going to the orchestra texture and they are tuned through filters so that they blend with the orchestra. And also I wanted sometimes to bring these kind of strange or intimate sounds into the hall. There's there's the music, but the text also does so much. The libretto by Amin Malouf is just glorious. How did you come to work together, and what, what was the interplay? Did he write the libretto and then you wrote the music, or which, which way around is it? First idea about Amin came finally from um, Peter Sellars, who knew Amin and who then made the first production of this work. And um, Gérard Mortier was uh, then the director of Salzburg Festival. And uh, as I um, didn't have other propositions, then Gérard wrote to Amin. And uh, we had a very official meeting in a Parisian restaurant. And uh, <laughs> that's why I always felt that uh, it was a little bit like a arranged marriage because uh, <laughs> we everything seemed so official and we signed the paper and all that but I mean took it very very seriously he studied librettos he was just listening my music enormously and uh, he really got somehow into my world I was very scared that what kind of text there could be the only problem was, in fact, that uh, he had never had le- deadlines and he had never really collaborated with anybody because he he's not showing his text before it's ready. That must have been frustrating. Uh, it was frustrating because I, I did have uh, I did have deadline. <laughs> so so uh, it, uh, he just wanted to keep it and be sure and read it at his place. And always when we met, it was at his place. And, uh, and then at some point, I was a little bit desperate. I said, could you fax me the, the last page? Because we know that we will not change that. And he did. And then I started composing the last aria. And then uh, I asked him to faxed me the first page, which he did, and that's when I wrote the beginning of the piece. And and then uh, I think then psychologically he was ready to give me the, the libretto, but it was crazy. So the fax machine was the pilgrim. Yeah, <laughs> indeed, indeed. In, your, in the arranged marriage. <laughs> yes, yes. Thank you so much, Kaya Sariaho, for being here today. Thank you. We've got one more tasty opera nugget for you on this week's episode of He Sang, She Sang. Um, On the show page at wqxr.org right now are a couple videos so you can see what's going on on stage. One, the first video is the trailer for the Met production going on right now, the one that we'll be listening to on Saturday on the national broadcast. And Marin, you've actually seen the production. Am I right? You're right. I was there. I was at the premiere. uh, And it was fantastic. Uh, the, the singing was wonderful. This, the set was gorgeous. You know, they created this ocean using thousands and thousands of LED lights that changed colors and created a sense of waves. And it was just really, really beautiful, unlike anything else that you'll see at the Met this season. Very cool. So you can go to the show page at wqxr.org and 
get a taste of those lights for yourself. And the other video that we have is an excerpt from the DVD that Marin was talking about earlier from the premiere production in Salzburg in 2000 featuring Don Upshaw. What's going on there? This is actually a really great opera to watch on DVD because it's so emotionally complex. Not very plot-driven, but really about the inner worlds of these characters. And when you have a DVD of the production, you really get up close. You get to see all of their facial expressions. And in that case, the stage is full of water, so that's also pretty cool. All right. Well, there you have it. You can check both those videos out at wqxr.org on the He Sang, She Sang show page. I hope this podcast got you ready for the opera this Saturday. I know I'm really excited to check it out. That's 1 o'clock p.m. on WQXR and wqxr.org. If you like what you heard, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. And join us next week as we get ready for Richard Strauss's Salome on He Sang, She Sang. My name is Mike Schaub. I'm Marin Lazian. Thank you so much for listening.